Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We are both certified arborists through the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forests, which include neighborhoods, parks, and other open spaces. We will also cover a myriad of tree topics, including the important role trees play in relationship to the climate crisis. Thank you for joining us. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top-tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top-charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence. MonheimMicrophones.com. Verdant Earth Educators provides dynamic in-person training and online learning opportunities for environmental and horticultural businesses. Owned by ISA certified arborists and former university faculty, the Verdant Earth Educator team provides consultations on tree care and recommends climate resilient opportunities for your valued green spaces. Verdant Earth Educators is all about seeding knowledge for success. Find Verdant Earth Educators at verdantearthseducators.com. This podcast is being recorded on June 9th, 2023. Marco Covisto keeps an ear to the ground and an eye to the sky, connecting the needs of organizations around the world with the power of drone data. As Chief Business Development Officer, he combines analytic expertise with a can-do attitude to ensure Globe delivers the right data to the right customer at the right time. While a young industry, Marco brings many years of experience in developing drone operations around the world, connecting to Globe's mission of making an impact on our planet. Marco has also contributed to peacekeeping missions, as well as worked within the defense industry, pursuing global business for a number of years. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Marco. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Thanks a lot, Eva. It's very happy to be here. So, Marco, can you tell us how you got involved in drones and this uh, technology that is growing so quickly? Yeah, there's a bit of a story behind that. I have a bit of a background in the in the military, Finnish, Finnish military. Um, I spent a number of years working as a peacekeeper in the Balkans. And after that, or while there, I, I got introduced to, to the, uh, some of the Finnish government workers there and eventually ended up working for the Finnish diplomatic mission in, in Kosovo. After about five years of the, the Balkans, I had enough. And I went back to, at the time, my headquarters was actually in Austria and I was I was looking for a job and opportunity arose with a local Austrian drone manufacturer it's one of the one of the, still one of the market leaders and here was the catch they were looking for a sales guy basically who had connections to a the militaries and b to governmental entities so my background happened to fit quite nicely 
so yeah, that was my entry into the industry. And uh, I ended up working nine years there selling drones all around the world, basically. And then it's been sort of obviously a big part of my life and 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 uh, carrying with me in my in my rucksack, so to say. So even though I did go work in some other industries as well, half of my friends are working with drones still today. So never really got out of it. Ended up working uh, inspecting critical infrastructure or or power lines, both with helicopters and drones. And yeah, about eight months ago, I then uh, got this opportunity to head sales at Globy. So. Here I am. It's, yeah, 12, 13 years of drones, something like that altogether. Nice. And what is the mission of Globy? So very briefly put, Globy can get you drone data from anywhere in the world in a matter of days. Almost anywhere in the world. There are a couple of countries where we don't go into. But we got started back in, in 2015 as the world's first crowd droning platform. And today we've come quite a way. We are today one of the largest drone data marketplaces on the planet. We have over 8,000 professional drone pilots in way over 100 countries, 134 countries, I believe it's currently. Okay, and just because this will be somewhat of an intro to drones for some of our listeners, and and myself included, uh, can you tell us or define what that crowd droning term is? So the whole idea was basically to try to find an easier and faster way to obtain drone data. And in order to do that, we need to do it in parallel also in a cheaper way, in a more sustainable way. So the way I used to do it before is send the drone a month before to the country where we were supposed to operate and then travel commercial airlines, travel myself there and then do it back and forth and so on. That's actually quite crazy if if you think of uh, the impact it has. The way we operate is we look for local drone operators. We utilize local persons to to conduct all the data collection. And compared to the old way of doing it, it's an it's a no brainer. The, the local people they they understand the language, they know their way around, they have their connections, their networks. We can react very quickly, most of the time cheaper than than the alternative would be. Yeah. So that's basically how it how it got together. And since then, word has spread both on the operator side. Anybody is invited to join our platform. We do have fairly string uh, requirements quality-wise, but if you fulfill those, welcome to join the join the, the crowd, so to say. And same thing, of course, with customers. So they, they both approach our platform, which basically the customers who want to get drone data sign up, request it on the map. We're really trying to make it as easy as possible. We're, we're, we're joking that we're one day will be as easy to to order drone data as it is to get an Uber uh, on your phone. So we're we're not exactly there yet, but soon. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me because being able to quickly gather data, especially with some of the data that I've seen your company gathering f- after flooding and after some major catastrophes, earthquakes, etc. I mean, you really have to have a good database of drone operators in your company's portfolio. And I'm wondering, how do you manifest that? And I know you're saying that they're they're connecting and they're telling each other about, but how do you really get that wonderful base to work with and uh, to stay connected with so that you keep uh, growing that base? So we're, we're only as good as the data we can deliver to our clients. Globy focuses only on the data collection. So we don't, we don't do any type of analysis. If we 
provide, as we often do, a turnkey solution, then we team up with an industry expert in between. So anyway, the, the data we, we deliver needs to be spot on. One of the first quality assurance methodologies we use is to make sure that we only work with professionals. As I mentioned, quite string uh, requirements. You need to be uh, have a certified uh, business, so you need to have a tax number. We want to it brings a bit more legitimacy to the business. Plus, we you know there's we know that we can invoice properly and it all goes by the books. The operator needs to have needs to show that they have their certificates to fly the drones in their country or countries. Some of our operators do border crossing, um, hopping operations, and you need to have insurance. Having all of these in place, so it, it kind of it cuts out a bit on the on the on the students on the freelancers and so on but as you, as you said Eva, some of the stuff is 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 quite critical data that we provide so it needs to be spot on well one of the the classes that I take took on mosquito droning there was a big discussion about the laws behind operation you can operate certain types of drones as a novice but the larger ones you have to affiliate yourself with the aerospace industry or the the actual flight industry to make sure that you are following proper air rules for passage through cities. For example, no one's allowed to fly a drone over populations. It has to only be over open space. And it was pretty technical. The information that was pretty technical Although they were spraying, releasing these male mosquitoes, they couldn't go over any houses, nothing like that. So, I mean, it's very stringent, as you're you're saying. Keep in mind that it is a secu- potentially a security hazard. Depending on the size of the drone or the weight of the drone, you have a heavier object flying. If it if it drops on your head, it's going to hurt you. So, or kill you. <laughs> in the worst case, yes. Yes. So obviously, that's something that the legislators are are, are looking at. Now, things are improving. Uh, drones are becoming more and more available. But the, the legislators are still very much working in this. The FAA the, in, in the US, EASA in, in Europe, and all over the world, basically. But what is key in our service is that this is something that the client doesn't need to worry about. As I mentioned, the drone operators need to show that they have the permits to operate. If it's a special type of mission, then we will help the operator together to get that approval. Mm-hmm. But it's 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 absolutely paramount that we always fly with with the permits. So any gray area or dodgy dodgy stuff, that's that's an absolute no go for us. Do you think the UN will be involved in eventually in helping to set the rules, like you know maybe more general earthly rules, and then each country will set their own country rules? Because that's what I see from a earthling here. I'm thinking uh, if I were a bird flying over a different country, we can't really see the boundaries. The bird can't see the boundaries. So, you know, who, who takes care of that? And how is that all manipulated? Or- so it's, it's definitely the job of the aviation authorities. So in okay. it, the US, it's the FAA. It's the, the equivalent in Europe, EASA, uh, taking, taking care of that. So it's those authorities who write the rules. You in the US, you have your drone rules. Europe has been looking at that, following following that, and improvising a little bit, um, making our own European rules. So in Europe right now, there is no national uh, legislation in that sense, but we're all following the 
actually we're in the transition phase right now, but there, there will be no national rules in that that sense for, for the time being. It's still obviously the case in, in some of the other countries. We operate a lot in South America, in Africa, and there we need to address uh, every country separately, case by case. Wow. The UN has no role directly in the legislation part. Um, we work a lot with, with the UN and the World Bank and where they, of course, they promote the doing good with drones. So um, a, lot, a lot of lot of good projects going on where, where drones are really making a huge impact. And hopefully that shows that you can you can actually utilize drones for many, many, many good things. And therefore there should be a need to assist this. I'm not saying that it should be the reason to liberate the drones, but there needs to be an easy way. Similarly to we are saying it should be easy to order drone data. It should eventually get fairly easy to also fly as long as you know how to fly. So, I'm wondering if we could pull this conversation a little bit, uh, Marku, towards environmental issues. And I'm just going to kind of put that in your lap and leave that wide open. Talk about what you see currently and in terms of future potential of uh, drone technology, uh, basically assisting and saving the planet or at least tamping it down with some of the issues we're facing with the climate catastrophe? So the common denominator for, for all of the environmental projects we do with drones is it makes it, first of all, safety. It's, it's safer to operate, operate the drone. It's easier and faster to operate. So you have the possibility to scale your operations. The most of the drones we use fit in a rucksack. So it's easy to move around and they are relatively inexpensive in comparison to airborne platforms or satellite data in that sense. So having images from the air has have been around there a lot. And the, currently the environmental projects are utilizing, I always tend to show the three steps of starting high above with the satellite data, going to the airborne platforms, and then and the lowest one is, is the drones. It is bringing a new dimension for many of the projects. Uh, people aren't used to seeing that type of detail of the imagery. Um, and it, it, it opens up huge possibilities. I can, I can give a few examples. We recently did a big flood risk model together with the, with the UN in Africa. And again, as I mentioned, we don't do any of the analytics ourselves, but the UN had a partner who guys who were actually crunching the numbers and creating the model and the simulations. And these guys had been working with satellite data before. And now you need to imagine that the resolution is then talking of a number of meters uh, in resolution normally. It can go today well, up to half a meter or 30 centimeters, but that's it. When we fly, it's anywhere from one to two centimeters, 20 centimeters, and, 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 and so on. So the resolution difference is quite big. And when you are simulating the flow of water, every crevasse, every crack helps you, of course. And this is, was the data that was not available before. So these guys had been using their models based on satellite data. And now suddenly they could see literally every crack and corner. And the water flows were, were very much different, much, much more precise. So these guys were, were super excited to get this type of data in their hands. So the precision level is, is one thing. Similar use cases, there's a million out there. The overall easiness of getting it for supervisional purposes or, or transparency reasons is something that we see also as a common denominator. A couple examples, reforestation projects. Investors 
putting a lot of money into planting millions of millions of trees. What is the progress, steady progress? Investors want to know it. Companies make NGOs preparing written reports, hundreds of pages of, of what they did and so on. Where at the end of the day, you can show a picture before, after you're done. That's all they need to know, right? I'm simplifying now a little right. bit. Yeah. But imagine that, that you're, you're, you're doing a reforestation project and you go in there, you take one picture every week, every second week, every quarter, and make a story out of it. So the storytelling aspect, auditing aspect, if you may, is something that we're implementing uh, all over the world. The World Bank started calling it remote supervision. They had, we worked with them together on a, on a school building project where it was unclear what the progress of every single school that was in very, very remote locations. We solved it by sending one of our local drone operators to site to just get a few snapshots from the air. A picture tells more than a thousand words. That was emailed to all the regional offices and New York and everywhere. And everybody, they didn't need to leave their office, basically. They got those images and you could see, aha, uh -huh, this is the status of the construction. Not only that, but the construction was finished fairly quickly because now there was somebody watching. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, see, now that's really interesting. That's, that's, that's that where the supervision, thing. remote yeah, supervision, supervision word comes from. Yeah. Right, right, right. And I would imagine that engineers would be really interested when you were talking about waterways where you can actually maybe see where the water's going that you might not be able to see after the fact. So they can make a detention basin in an area where they might not have thought to put it because they didn't have that information before. Maybe it was a remote area and they could use that area as a, a pooling area instead of having it go all the way through the system. I mean, that kind of stuff I, I think of from an agricultural standpoint or a environmental standpoint, where to know to put your critical infrastructure that can actually help to prevent flooding down the line. You know, or maybe this area needs 10,000 more trees because this is what's going to be coming into that area. And you could use a tree that is very comfortable with being in water for a short time and then it'll, you know, pass on. But those are the kind of things I think are really critical, especially now with all the burns that we're having here in the U.S. I mean, we're, we're feeling the smoke here in Philadelphia from Canada. And it's really, we can't go outside. I mean, that's how bad it is. And somebody's going to need to replant those trees. Yeah, it's... <sighs> Again, there's so many different different aspects play, play into that. I mean, on one hand, the drone data, again, gives insights that we never had before. Our prime example, what we've been involved in was the uh, malaria uh, mosquito breeding sites, where previously worked with satellite data, you would, you would not be able to get the resolution to actually detect the breeding sites. I'm talking about the spots where they actually are breeding and the larvae are, are located. But from the drone data with the precision, you could actually see it. Now you knew where the breeding sites were and you could preventively react to that. And think of the impact of that, of cutting down on the malaria infections. So very, very helpful. Another, another good use case would be something that we've been doing here in, in Scandinavia. Our forests have big problem actually with spruce bark beetles. Mm. And the way it traditionally worked was that when your forest was infected, you would preventively cut a large chunk of your forest away, preventively. Huge economic losses, of course. We are talking literally billions in losses only in Scandinavia on this on this topic every well, year. We have the beetle here too in in the West. Yeah. Okay. So we teamed up with uh, with a company in Sweden 
that doesn't an artificial intelligent machine learning algorithm to detect the tree that is infected by the bark beetle. So now when we fly with the drone, the software can detect from the imagery we provide, detect instead of preemptively cutting half your forest, you can target to say this tree, this tree, and this tree, and this tree. I mean, they were talking bang for your buck. Absolutely, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, Have you been doing any planting, planting of trees or uh, the dispersal of seed? Yeah, I am. I'm working on a contract right now. Can't mention too much. It's not signed yet. That's okay. That's all right. <laughs> we don't need to know names. We I just hope the other side is listening. So it, I'm it, waiting interest, here. So interesting. Interesting. It's, it's a it's a it's a very big uh, reforestation uh, organization, and uh, I'm planting trees with cedar drones. I'll be honest with you. Majority of our our drones that we work is image based, so we're using the the smaller smaller drones, but. We're getting now into the bigger, bigger ones as well. And uh, cedar drones would be uh, one case here. But that's that's uh, something that we, of course, want to want to support very much. So have you heard anything about the actual drones that they plant seedlings, not seed, but seedlings? Only what I've seen on the Internet. It's so fabulous. And I'm like, OK, well, you know, because California's had so many fires, you have very steep slopes and you really can't stand on them as human beings. You just, you're not a goat. And a, and and because the soils are so fragile, you don't want people stepping on them and compressing them. So the drones can do that. My concern is more practical. I see that and I'm thinking, oh God, how to scale that on a global scale, you know? Because <laughs> then it's very hardware related, of course. And we're kind of trying to get, get away from that. Yeah, the cedar drones are, are one exception to this, of course, but um, yeah. You've talked about working in remote locations and checking for potential flood failure points and, and things like that. When the operator uh, brings the drone to a site, and you can give us these dimensions, you know, however you're comfortable in terms of metrics, but uh, how far away are they from, say, a bend in a river or, or something like that where they're going out to gather images? So do you mean the distance between the drone and the operator? Or yes, where how the far drone operator uh, actually lives? Like, is it a kilometers or is it meters? Or is it, you know, how far is the actual starting point for the drone to the delivery or the, the first initial visual? Answer is fairly simple. Usually, because of the drone legislation of the permits that you have, you can either fly within visual line of sight or beyond visual line of sight. And and the majority happens within visual line of sight. So that literally means that as long as you can see the drone without any obstruction of the view. That can be a little bit more or it can be a little bit less. And usually it is a little bit less because very open areas seldomly the case that something needs to be inspected. So. There are usually objects there. The tendency is growing, of course, to fly more effective missions, to fly beyond visual line of sight. The, the drones are becoming more capable. The, the sense and avoid systems are getting more sophisticated. And the legislation is, is working hard <laughs> to, to regulate this somehow in terms of the airspace use and, and safe, safe operations. So when I was working for the first drone company that I joined, it was a, it was a big drone and we, we serviced mostly the governmental agencies and, and militaries and so on. And that drone had a limit of 200 kilometers. So we're talking really long distances, but then you don't, you know, you don't fly in low altitudes, but you're, you're talking 10,000 feet and, and those type of, type of altitudes. So it depends 
a lot on the type of drones you have, type of mission you have, and then the permits, the, how you are allowed to fly. The actual distance per se is not really not really that important. Well, do you think, and I know this is, this is a horrible, I mean, I'm thinking something good always happens from something bad. And right now with the Ukraine war and the use of drones, do you think that that will actually yield information for us for the better use of a drone for our populations? There has to be something positive that comes out of something negative. And what kind of things can come from that that maybe aren't available right now? Well, so for, first of all, we at Globy, we one of the rules we have is that we do not work with any military-related projects. So that's important to mention. Um, a little bit from my background, I do, of course, understand a thing or two. Um, I don't know. I. It's kind of hard for me. On one hand, yes, the, the pe- people have seen the use of drones in Ukraine in the news and, and have a little bit better understanding of, of what drones can do. Unfortunately, those drones, <laughs> what the news are showing, are not doing anything good for, for right, humans. Exactly, in that sense. exactly. So it could, it's actually, it's kind of taking one step forward and then taking two, two, two steps back. Um, we're trying to convince people to try using drones that it can be bring more value add, it's safer, it's it's more sustainable. And if you the only view you saw was launching a missile or or dropping a grenade, I don't know. The, you don't you want the, you don't combine want that with with maybe not so nice use cases, and then maybe you don't want to utilize drones. So I don't know. It's there's a lot there. There's a lot to unpackage. <laughs> As a result, of course, more and more people are getting getting into drones for whatever reason it is. It's promoting the drone technologies in general, which is, I mean, the technology is here to stay, no doubt. Um, we can't get over that fact. Just need to make sure that it's it's being utilized in a in a, in a safe manner. I think that's the the most most crucial thing. Well, I know in the agriculture industry, it's used a lot out west for looking at, for example, corn crops or soybean crops. They can actually see spotted areas where there might be a low area where the plants are dying out, or there might be, like you were saying earlier, the insects that might affect a plant or a disease that might crop up that might be in a little spot that they can quickly extinguish with use of uh, some type of pesticide or fungicide, for example. Mm-hmm. So there's there, there's been a lot of good use of drones in agriculture, and I think that really has been spurring on a lot of use, especially in the in the uh, forestry industry for planting and tree assessment. I know as arborists, a lot of arborists are now starting to use drones to see what the canopy looks like so they don't have to send men up and women up in you know lifts because they can see from drone. It's kind of logical if, if you think that technology will make it simpler, faster, safer, cheaper, and you will start implementing it eventually. I guess it's always been in like that in the course of history. And now we're at the stage where the robotics are coming in and drones drones play a role in that. Safety and in, in infrastructure inspections. Look at power line power line inspections where before the maintainer would climb up the pole to inspect the components. Before that, the power would have to be cut off, um, safety trainings and all of this. It's quite some some efforts in to do that. 
now you can take a drone, boots on the ground, a few minutes to fly around. And if you have a sophisticated model, you will have a AI algorithm that then detects the components and flags saying, hey, here's a broken insulator disk. And all of that, of course, goes significantly faster. I would think also on the flip side that the information that drones can gather for us when they target, I don't want to say the bad actors, but, you know, mining, refineries, things like that, perhaps even polluters, things, organizations that are getting uh, a little sloppy and lack oversight that you could... Poaching, illegal fishing. This is the kind of stuff that we've been we've been involved with. The mining and oil and gas is for us a bit tricky, but it belongs into the industries where we don't like to work so much. We prefer to focus on things that are doing good for the planet. So uh, that's that. But I always refer to the eye in the sky. Uh, it is what what makes it yeah. possible, and it is often the the presence of the mere drone. So it has a deterring function as well, of course. When you have the public events now and you see that the police is flying a drone, you know somebody's watching, right? And you try to behave. <laughs> well, it's like the helicopter in the sky before, you know? Yes, the but, now it's, yes but now it's this more sustainable version where right. it's drone right. so, yeah. <laughs> now, how small can a drone be? Oh, wow. There are micro drones that are the size of a... Um, uh, like a, a box of matches or what's it called? Or like the lo- size of a locust, like an insect? Yeah, that's the insect, yes. Yeah. Um, there are very, 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 very small drones. Most of them are reserved for, again, the governments and militaries because they come with a heavy price tag. But, well. but the point is that you can you can't put it in your pocket yet, really, the consumer versions, but it's not far from there, you know? Um which, which is very practical, of course, because then it gives, gives a lot of new freedom in the way you take your videos or your action videos when you're out uh, mountain biking or snowboarding and so on. You mentioned that drones are being helpful with uh, managing for forest pests in Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, I guess this will just be a hypothetical, how drones were probably being used prior to uh, Canada's fires starting up. They must have had a sense of how vast, how many hectares or acreage they were looking at and anticipating was going to be dry enough to give us the fires that we're experiencing now. A little bit I've worked with uh, wildfire prevention was for the power line inspection work that, that I did earlier. And there you would have, well, first of all, preventive measures with the drones. As we know, historically, many of the wildfires originate actually from power line, malfunctioning power Right, California had that big problem, yeah. Correct. So obviously you can use the drones to check the components of those. You can do vegetation analysis, making sure that there are no trees falling over the power lines and catching fire. That's the preventive stuff. During a fire, you can, of course, use it with thermal cameras to, to see the, where the fire is spreading and, again, help guide the wildfire crews uh, in, in combating them. I'm, I'm going to be a bit careful here because this is really not my expertise. Sure. But, um, and then in the aftermath, of course, with the damage assessments, it's, again, the aerial, getting a simple aerial picture of the extent of the damage so much faster and easier than you would do either walking or, or wait until eventually you would get the satellite uh, picture. Can they also gather data for weather that way, like microclimates? Um, 
temperature. We've been thinking, we've been thinking about it. There are. There is actually, I, I come from Finland and there is actually a very big uh, weather tech company here in Finland. And oh. I've been contemplating whether we should talk together and see if... if I think you should. <laughs> they could attach some sensors <laughs> sensors to drones. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all about this, not only the drone itself, it's just like a, like a, a, a carrier. And it depends on what kind of sensors and payloads you can, you can attach to the drone. Uh, and there's no currently no ceiling in sight. The... The smaller the sensors are getting, the, the better the technology gets, the more uh, you can use those then to, in combination with drones that opens up again a million different options of, of doing stuff. So, Well, I can really see the benefits of that because, you know, the microclimates in particular might affect, you know, how new trees are going to survive or not because of a dry or windy area that might be a little bit more inhospitable to that particular species, something like that. Well, it's... Yeah, or something where it's difficult to get into uh, dangerous places. I'm thinking now, for example, of glaciers and monitoring the the unfortunate progress of global warming where the glaciers are melting and measuring the impact of that. If you look at the impact of the glaciers melting in the Himalayas and the floods it's causing in Pakistan, affecting huge amount of people, Mapping that and understanding at what extent are the ice is melting. Because this is, of course, a glacier in the Himalayas melting is, you would think like there's some water trickling. No, it's, it's a dark lake amount of water pouring suddenly down. It's insane. Anyway, this, this type of scientific data is, I think that will grow definitely in, 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 in the future because again, combination of using the drones to safely go in places where you couldn't go before. Uh, to get data, and then with the sensoric that's developing, it's going to be a lot of cool data out there soon. Well, I can imagine this where you can attach a laser or like a even a LIDAR system to it and get really very, very minute details of, of an area to give you data that you might be working on for an experiment or I can see universities using them for collecting data if they don't have enough people on the ground to be able to collect that data. I think there's just so many uses. It's just almost endless. When you use that type of sensoric, you can get create the digital twin, which is which is the, the recent buzzword here, where you make a digital representation of a, of a physical object or area. And that then can be used for 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 again so many different use cases because you know every point every point on your digital twin where it is take simple geometrical measurements use it to quality assure i had some friends who were involved with the insurance business and this was actually in in the us where you would insure your house for earthquakes and they would tediously measure the walls with measuring tape and then after a disaster measure again and it takes a long time but using using lidar technology would simply fly around the house and take a digital representation of your house and then do a change detection meaning seeing if 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 the walls changed again if there are now any industry experts i apologize for a poor explanation but <laughs> yeah, i think i think having industries that are cutting edge and being able to talk about them even if we can't talk about them as minutely as we'd like to. I think it's important just to get the message out that this information is there and the technology Money. is there. Or 
you know, those people who are technology geeks, what they can be working on next to help our catastrophic events, you know, like the earthquakes, you know, how maybe they're already detecting ahead of time when that next earth, earthquake is going to happen locally, for example. I, I think you touch a good topic here because it's it's part of the mission also that we have is to trying to make drone data easily available. And you can complicate things a lot by starting talking about drone data and the different sensors and the permits and all of this. But we want to cut through all of that and simply say, mm-hmm. what do you want to do with your data? What type of results do you need? Well, I need to know if my plants are healthy. Good. All we need to know. We'll take care of it and you'll find out if your plants are healthy. Most of the clients, they don't need to or even want to understand what type of drone you are using and what altitude are you flying and uh, you know what's your frequency band of your con- data connection and you know all of this and that's that's the challenge in it in itself uh, for the, for the industry to make it as as simple as possible. I like that because uh, in terms of as you just articulated, uh, Marco, cutting through and just giving the nuts and bolts simple information. I think a couple times over the last year and a half or so here in Philadelphia seeing the images that drones have captured in terms of the underserved neighborhoods that we have in our U.S. big cities where the trees are gone or in a diminished state of health and what people are putting up with and dealing with daily uh, when it's hot and dry and, as Eva mentioned, very smoky. But, you know, seeing those images a couple times in presentations, it's like, okay, there's my inspiration, there's my goal is where to reforest and ideally do it as soon as possible. Yeah, it's it's the old cliche that the picture tells more than a thousand words. <laughs> yeah, very, whoever very came strong. up with that, yeah, whoever came up with that <laughs> saying is like, that's the best saying. And it's true because Philadelphia just came up with their Philly tree plan and everybody was aghast when they saw it and they saw the pictures of how disparaging it was to communities that you know, always said that they were not being served, but now it proves that they weren't being served. And, you know, taking that information is is a gold nugget for for those people and how we can serve them better um, because they don't have what they claim they didn't have to begin with. But now we have proof. You know, now we have proof. It's becoming, for a lot of the end users out there, it's becoming somewhat irrelevant how the data was collected. They did come from a satellite, airborne platform, drone from the ground, whatever. They don't really care, all of them. They want to get the information out of it and do something with that. And uh, educated decisions, that's, that's, that's the, uh, the, 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 the punchline there. And when, you, when you're in a situation like that, it, it will actually just boil down to the simplicity. Where can I get that data the fastest, the easiest, and honestly, most affordable, right? Where it's just the cheapest to get that data. So I have a question for you is, if I'm a landowner here in the United States and I wanted to have someone come and take a look at my 2,000 acres, can I hire your company? You can hire, yeah. I, we can, I can hire your company and you can yes. come look at my 2,000 acres and give me an assessment of where I have gaps in the forest cover, where I might have bad erosion, where I might need to bulk up my, um, my planting because of runoff 
Um, where you might find beech leaf disease. Yeah, where you might find beech leaf disease or or beetle disease, depending on where I have the property or where I have the client. Um, so I, I think that this is good information for our listeners, no matter what country you're in, because we're in over 90 countries. We want to make sure that this information is is tangible to everybody. And that if they wanted to contact your company, they could and say, you know, this is what I need. And, I, and I'm hoping that you can help me. Yes, definitely go and try it because we, as I said, or been say, saying a couple of times now already that we're trying to make it as simple as possible. And we, we offer the service through our platform on the internet. So you go to globally.com, click on the map here, draw your area. This is where my 2000 acres are and click from a menu of saying, I want this and this kind of as, as, as the product and a deadline by when you want it. Our platform will tell you, give you an indication right then and there how much it is probably going to cost. Once it comes to our platform, we we do check it for the, we call it the sanity check, that it wasn't in some middle of the ocean by accident that that selected area. Um, and uh, and then confirm confirm it. So as I mentioned, we have operators in 134 countries at the moment. So there are literally just a few countries where, well, nobody really wants to go. So... Um, we tend not to do that also. But apart from that, anywhere in the world. Wow. <laughs> hey, before we let you go, Marku, and not to uh, uh, surprise you too much, since you're a, a drone person and not a tree person, do you have a favorite tree? I have I have two favorite trees. Oh, okay. Oh, that's Lovely. exciting. <laughs> The one is 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 more to my uh, what I have in my my backyard, and I'll explain that in a bit. But what has become for us at Globy very important. If you ask anybody at Globy, it's the same answer. It's the it's the baobab tree, ah, because we sure. we did a, we did a project uh, together with the UN uh, some while ago for the Great Green Wall in, in northern Ghana, where we helped create. They were trying to work on the uh, machine learning model to actually automate finding detecting and classifying the trees so that you could actually find where they are located and 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 help them grow so that has become of course it's kind of a the, the company favorite tree if you if you ask that we actually do get asked that that question because we do work a lot in 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 forestry the other option is the finnish birch tree mm-hmm. my last name koivisto actually refers to a area of young birch trees and I don't know if you know that from us as Finns, what we what we do, you know that we're people that like to go into sauna, right? right. Most, most know that the Finns like to go to sauna. In the springtime, so right about now, when the leaves are still small, they're soft. So what we do is we, we, we take some of the branches, bind them together, and you use that to literally whip yourself in the sauna. Right. Mind you, the leaves are still there, so we're not beating ourselves to blood, basically. But um, so that that's been a very traditional. It's more than it's a Scandinavian thing, actually. But um, we Finns Finns like to do that. So yeah, if I would have to pick a personal favorite, then that would be the the birch tree. <laughs> which, can you do you know which birch it is? Do you know which species it might be? Bear with me. I'll, I'll or the com- or the common name I'll, for it. Yes, let me. Google it quickly. When you were saying you beat yourself with the birch branches, that kind of reminded me of when I do my meditation classes, they, they take you through this tapping on your head and tapping on your shoulders. Betula? Betula? Betula, yeah. And the spe- what's the species? Do you know what the species is? 
Petula pendula roth. Hmm. Pendula roth. Okay, that's good to know. I'm Googling this now, right now, as we speak. <laughs> and that's what you have in your backyard as well? Oh, multiple, actually. Oh, lovely. Lovely. That's wonderful. And the bark, oh, is it yeah. white or is it white it's and black? White and with the black, thin black lines going. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, we're delighted that you could be on our podcast and share. This was was fun talking to you guys. The knowledge. You have so much knowledge about this topic. And I I hope that our listeners enjoy this podcast because I don't want to say it's up and coming because it's already here, but we have a lot to look forward to in the future for what your company is doing for the world, the globe. And to help us in the forestry and the environmental end and horticulture, how important it is for us even to have a botanical garden have themselves assessed by a, a drone is important, you know, just to see if everything's where it should be, you know? Yeah, I, I welcome everyone to follow us on social media. We're all in the, the, the usual social medias present and uh, see our, our journey. We, we do quite openly tell what we're doing all around the world. So, yeah. I I hope more and more people join and follow us. I'm sure that we've inspired some of our listeners to go out and buy their, you know, buy their own drone, the people that are planting trees and taking care of trees and involved at community level with urban forestry. And you mentioned botanical gardens, uh, Eva, and I, I think that day is coming where someone on a staff at the botanical garden will have a drone because seasonally, As you know, things change day to day, week to week, and to capture images of, you know, garden beds under development and and the flowering of the rhododendron collection and things like that, it's it's going to be a great visual resource for for everyone involved. I know that Longwood has drone operators. There you go. Because I I work there and they do that. And also um, working at the um, Delaware Botanic Garden, there's a gentleman there who does the, the drone operations over yeah. the botanic garden and shows a different progression, which is great. So when you could see, like you said, Victor tells a thousand words, you could see what it was and what it is. Right. Right. Well thanks again, Marco. You've yep. been fabulous. Was a pleasure. We'll be Have in touch. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you.